Psalm 14. There are 150 different psalms. And we are in a series called Psalms in the Summer. And we'll go through maybe 15 or 16 of these. And then we'll move on to probably a New Testament book. This has been an exhausting week for me in some ways. We've just, we just got back from Houston uh, last night, late last night. And uh, by the way, Dean, I saw your grandson. Brad, is it Brad? Chris. Chris. Big, tall, good-looking young man. Right. Saw him at uh, Buffalo Creek uh, Restaurant for breakfast. <laughs> and I was sitting there, and he said, Dr. Street. And, uh, everybody in the restaurant turned around. <laughs> 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 it's been a very two weeks. Been married two weeks. <laughs> Wife's still not fixing him breakfast. <laughs> Train him a little better than that. Right? <laughs> uh, but fortunately, I had this psalm. Uh, I worked on this psalm earlier in the week, and I had this thing finished before I went down to Houston. And then uh, last night I went over it once again, and then this morning I went over it a couple times. Uh, by the way, if you are a guest or you have to miss often. You can go to the presidentsclass.org. It's called presidentsclass.org. And all of our uh, Bible studies are on there. There'll be about a dozen. The last 12, 15 will be on, on that site. And you can listen to any of those that you want. Uh, it's not so important in the Psalms as it is if we get into a new book. And you miss, uh, let's say we were in like the Gospel of John. You miss John 1, uh, 1 through 14. And then we go to 15 through 29. It's based on, you know, that second message would be based on the first. So important that you hear that so uh, you can catch up by going to presenceclass.org by the way that class is being listened to all around the United States Carol Heaton, uh, Heaton has a friend that listens to it in uh, Australia I don't know who else listens to it France I had a cousin now this is a cousin that I haven't seen since I was probably 11 or 12 and she writes me an email. Somehow she finds my name, writes me an email, and she said, I saw your message on the president's class. Looked up your name and the president's class came up. And she just wrote me a second email this week and said, I'm going to listen to it again. See, I can't wait for Monday because I'm going to listen to your message uh, this coming Monday. So, Carolyn, this is for you. <laughs> when I knew her, we called her sissy. A grown woman, she's my age. I call her my kissing cousin because when I was 11 years old, I think I fell in love with her. <laughs> she was a year older than, than I was, so you know, I fall in love with mature women. So. <laughs> anyway, what am I talking about? Uh, we're in Psalm 14, okay? <laughs> We've been to Houston, to France, everywhere. <laughs> Psalm 14. Now this is a very familiar psalm, and you'll realize it when you see the first words of that psalm, but it's uh, a psalm that is very little understood, okay? So let's look at it. The first sentence says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now when you look at that sentence, that's one complete sentence, you'll notice several things about it. You'll see the subject of the sentence, and that subject is the fool. Okay? That's the subject. Okay? Then you look at the verb has said. This fool has spoken something. 
And this fool continues to speak something. He's not only said it in the past, but this fool continues to say it even to, into the present. And then you discover what he says. Look what he says at the end of that verse. There is no God. That's what he says. The fool continually says there is no God. Now, most likely, this is not describing an atheist. And I've, I've preached a sermon on atheism, and I use this verse. But it's probably talking about either the surrounding nations who don't recognize Yahweh, or Jehovah is the one true and living God. They say he's not God. Or it's referring to Jews that have drifted away from the faith, and they live as if there is no God. Uh, because if you'll notice the location of their saying, it says the fool has said where? In his heart. Uh, notice they're not saying it out loud necessarily. These could be people, like today we would call them people who come to church, but they have a lot of doubts in their mind. Uh, they come for various reasons. But deep down in their heart, they don't believe in a God. They're practical atheists. And we're not sure exactly what that, uh, who this person is. But we do know this. The who is the fool. The what is there is no God. And the where is in the heart. Now the next thing you need to know about that sentence is that phrase, the fool, notice there's a definite article in front of it. But it doesn't talk about an individual. It's talking about a class of people. Or the kind of people. The kind of people that we would designate as fools. By the way, that word fool comes from the Hebrew word nabal. Remember Nabal, whose vineyard uh, David got a hold of? Uh, his name meant fool. And this is a classification of people. And I'll show you how we know that in a second. The kind of a person or the classification of a person. The person that's known as a fool. Somebody who's foolish. Okay. Now notice, as you go down verse 1, it says, they are corrupt. Notice, there's a plural pronoun. You see that? They... It says the fool, but then the next part says what? They, which shows you the fool is a classification. It includes a lot of people in it. Okay? Now, they are corrupt. So we have that corrupt, which means they are rotten. Okay? Rotten through and through. They're foul. Okay? Uh, they have corrupt thoughts. <coughs> they, as the verse goes on, they have done abominable works and they continue to do these works in other words their actions match the beliefs in their heart the things they believe in are no god guess what it produces corrupt works people of corrupt nature and it produces bad works because if they're if god's sort of been placed out of their consciousness if they remove god from their thinking then they feel they can do whatever they want to do and they can get away with it and then it says there is none who does good in this category called fool, uh, they don't do anything that really produces uh, righteousness or, or goodness. Now, when we, does that make sense to you right there? That sort of sets this thing up. Now, in verse 2, what we have is God surveys the situation. So look what it says in verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men. You see that? So these fools make up another group which are called the children of men versus or opposed to the children of God. So you have a group that are children of God and guess what they believe? There is a God. And then you have another group of people that are foolish and he calls them 
lumps them together and calls them the children of men. Okay? So he looks down upon these lost people. And look what he's trying to discover. This is divine surveillance. God, who they don't believe in, is looking down on them. Okay? And he's looking to see if there are any who understand. He's looking down to see if there's any who seek God. And the answer is, what do you think it is? No, they don't see God and they don't understand. They're, they are ignorant. That's why they're fools. They're foolish. They don't understand. They're ignorant. And they don't seek God. That means they're self-sufficient. They don't feel they need God. And there are many church people that feel that way. Now, many Americans that feel that way. We don't need God. And we might, on our lips, mention God, but we live as if there's no God. And how do I know that? Because of the works that we do. See, we're basically practical atheists in many ways. So God looks down and says, well, do they seek me or are they self-sufficient? Do they hold me in their thoughts or do they not? And the answer is they do not. Now, I want you to look at something. I want you to go back a page and I want you to look at Psalm 10. And you see that same kind of idea there. And look down at verse 4. Psalm 10 and verse 4. The wicked and his proud countenance does not see God. Same thing that we just saw in 14. God is in none of his thoughts. See, that, that's why I say that these psalms are connected. A blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. This is ungodly people. People don't keep God in their, in their, in their uh, thinking. So go back to uh, Psalm 14. We have sort of a conclusion here. Uh, it's sort of an interesting verse, verse 3. Look what it says. They, still talking about these fools, they have all turned aside. Okay. Number two, they have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. Now, what do you notice about that verse? When you, when you read the verse, what you should notice is that it's a repeat of verse 1. Take a look at that. Verse 1, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Look at verse 3, they've all turned aside. Look at verse 1, they are corrupt. Look at verse 3, they've all together become corrupt. See? Look at verse 1, there's none who does good. Look at verse 3, there's none who does good. It's an absolute repeat of verse 1. And then, to emphasize that, David adds at the end of verse 3, no... Not one. Now what grabs your attention about that verse? The Apostle Paul quotes it. He quotes it in Romans chapter 3, and I want you to turn there. The Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 14 when he writes his letter to the Romans. Chapter 3. Okay, Romans chapter 3. Now this gets interesting because now you're going to see how a New Testament writer interprets the psalm for us. Okay, Romans chapter 3, and we won't read all of chapter 3, but let me start maybe uh, at the end of verse 9, where it says they're all under sin. You see that? Romans 3, 9? Last sentence there says they're all under sin. 
as it is written. Well, where is it written, Paul? It's written in Psalm 14. Here's what it is. There is none righteous. Look. No, not one. Did you just see that? You did. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They are all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And then Paul goes on and he elaborates it and he puts it in the terms of the human body. He says their throat is an open sepulcher, open tomb. And he goes down all the way to their feet in verse 15. They're, he goes from the head to their feet. He said they're rotten throughout the whole, their whole system. That's called uh, total depravity. We're totally depraved. There's not one part of our being that has not been touched by sin and corruption. Not that we're totally sinful. It's just that we're not as sinful as we could be. We can all sin a little bit more than we are, but we are as much sinners as we can be. Our nature is that we're sinners. And if you go down to the end of that verse, look what he says in verse 18. Uh, uh, Romans 3, look down at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you see that? There is no fear of God before their eyes. I want you to remember that word fear. Okay? Now in a couple minutes, I'm going to say, what word did I want you to remember? I want you to say, fear. Okay? Remember that word fear. Because here's what he says about, this is sort of his conclusion. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't even consider God. He's out of the picture. They say there is no God, and that's why they act this way. Now, we just picked up in chapter 3, but I want you to go back to Romans 1, because Romans 1 through 3 is a whole section in this letter. And I want you to look at verse 21, Romans 1, 21. And this sort of serves as a foundation for Romans 3. Okay. And look what Paul says. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. It's not that they didn't know there was a God, but they didn't, in their hearts, they, have, they don't hold God in their thoughts. And so, as a result, they don't glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their own thoughts. And their, what kind of hearts? Foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became what they become? How does Psalm 14 open up? The fool has said in his heart there is no God. So see how Paul is taking this theme from Psalm 14. And he is moving it over into Christian theology. And he's applying it to hum the human race as a whole. David takes it and he's applying it to maybe a Gentile nation. That's trying to overthrow the Jewish God and the Jewish nation. Or maybe Jews within the nation that are living in the state of rebellion, not living under God. But Paul takes it and he applies it to everybody. And here we see the universality of sin. What was that word I asked you to remember? Yeah. Don't forget that. <laughs> Just thought about that. So what we have is Paul, in a sense, interprets Psalm 14 for us uh, from a Christian perspective. So. Here, there, there are people who know there's a God, they reject God, they become fools, and they live ungodly. They live as if there is no God. Now go back to, to uh, Psalm 14. Still with me? Okay, now look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. 
the writer says, David says, have all the workers of iniquity? Now this is a question. Notice there's a question mark there. It can be a statement as well, but we'll read it as a question. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? And the answer is, see, that's what he says back in verse 2. Not anything in verse 2? God looks down to see if any who understands. See? Now verse 4. Have all workers of iniquity no knowledge? No, they don't keep God in their knowledge. They don't keep God in their thoughts. See? Now notice how he describes these people. Number one, who eat up my people as they eat bread. That's right. If you took it literally, it means they're cannibals. But they're not cannibals, are they? They're not literally eating. In fact, this would be... Uh, a simile, wouldn't it? They eat up my people as they eat bread. Well, how do they eat bread? Well, eating bread comes about as natural as anything. That's the staple of life. Uh, they eat a piece of bread without any second thoughts. When you eat bread, you devour bread. Guess what these people are doing? Devouring the people of God. Uh, not literally like they're eating their flesh, but they're devouring them. Well, when you devour somebody, that means you... Turn them into nothing. You steal what they possess. You devour their goods. See? And I think that we're going to see that probably he's describing uh, a group of people, children of God, who are trusting in God for everything that they have. And here's another group that comes in and just takes it all away. And they don't even have a second thought about it. They steal what these people have. They take advantage of them. They leave the God's people without anything. And then at the end of verse 4, he says, and do not call upon the Lord. That's how he describes them again. They do not call upon the Lord. This is what they should be doing. In other words, if I want something, I see this thing that I want, I should call upon the Lord and I should say, Lord, I need that. And I should trust Him. But they're not doing that because they're self-sufficient. They see that Peggy has it and I want it. They'll just take it because they can take advantage of Peggy. So that's what they're doing. They're devouring God's people. Okay? So, uh, what was that word I wanted you to remember? Okay, now look at verse 5. There they are in, look at this, great fear. Now this is sort of interesting, isn't it? Here we see that David says these people who are devouring God's children are in great fear. So wait a second, why are they in great fear? They don't believe in the God, do they? Why are they in great fear? Well, look what it says. Because God is with the generation of the righteous. He is with the just. He is with the people of faith. Now, wait a second. I didn't think they believed in God. Why are they in fear? Because this God they don't believe in is with the people that they are devouring. Now, what does that say here to you? In their hearts, they're saying, look, But in reality, what? They know there's a God. And this God is on the side of the righteous. And they know that they're not righteous. They're unrighteous. And so, believe it or not, while they are devouring God's people and God's property, and they're taking advantage of the helpless and the powerless, the whole while they're doing it is they're living in fear. Fear. 
They're having panic attacks. They're doing these sneaky things. They think they're getting away with it, and God's not looking, but guess what? God is looking. And deep down, they know that He's looking. And so they're living in this perpetual state of, of fear. You ever have a panic attack? Probably most of us have had a panic attack. If you're old enough, you probably had a panic attack. You need to ask yourself why you have a panic attack. There are a lot of reasons. But if you've ever done anything that's wrong, and you knew it was wrong, and you thought you'd get away with it, but you thought you might get caught, and suddenly fear just grips you, sort of is what's happening with these people. Okay? They're, uh, these fools are actually living in fear because what they're doing is unjust. They're taking advantage of the powerless and people who have no advocates, people who can't defend themselves. Okay? Now look at verse 6. You shame the counsel of the poor. Shame means you dishonor them. Uh, the counsel of who? You've seen that before in Psalms? <laughs> I thought we were finished with this in Luke, didn't you? See, we're not finished with this in Luke. Because the poor represent those people who are powerless. We're not talking about like the poor in America. who get a government check and food stamps and they're living better than the people in Somalia. These poor people were people who could depend on a check coming in. They had nothing. That meant if they didn't get food, they would die. If they didn't get shelter, a place to stay, they would die. And here somebody comes in and says, uh, I'm upping your rent. And now they can't afford it. Guess what? They're put out in the elements and they die. They're helpless. They say, that's not fair. You shouldn't charge me this amount of money. This isn't worth it. Well, if you don't like it, I can rent it to somebody else. And what can these poor people do? They can't do anything. It's not like they can. there's a Dallas Life Foundation. They can't go there. Not in David's time. See, so these poor people, what's this counsel of the poor? You shame the counsel of the poor. Where do the poor hunt for counsel? Where do you think they go for counsel? There's only one place they can go. And that's God. And these people say, ha, yeah, call out to your God. See what he does. <laughs> They shame the counsel of the poor. Yeah, call out to your God. Remember, that's what uh, Robert Ingersoll used to do. He used to challenge people. Ah, if there's a God up there, may he strike me dead. Okay, God, he pulled out his stopwatch. I'm giving you ten seconds. Ten, nine. Still up there? You're really up there? Strike me dead. Ah, come on. Cry out to him, Don. Time to strike me dead. Ah-ha! You're not even listening. Your prayers will reach higher than the ceiling. See, that's what these people were doing. And guess what? The whole time we know from verse 2, God's looking down. Should scare you. They knew there was a God, but guess what? They put him out of their out of their thinking. So it's the poor people that they're doing this to. And then it says at the end of verse 6, but the Lord is his refuge. Look at that. You laugh. But guess what? The Lord's his dwelling place. You kick him out. The Lord, Lord will provide for him. The Lord is his shelter. Now, I believe that the phrase the poor 
there. It's probably a classification of people too, not just one individual. So here you have these poor people that are righteous. They're the generation of the righteousness in verse 5. And these corrupt people are taking advantage of these powerless people. And then verse 6 says, but the Lord He'll take care of them, and guess what? If he's taking care of them, he's going to take care of you too, but in a different way. So that's what you have here. Uh, they dishonor these people. Now we have David's wish. Look at verse 7. Oh, he said, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Notice what he, this is his wish. Oh, Lord, I wish that you would solve this problem. And notice the word salvation there means deliverance. Oh, that deliverance, the deliverance of Israel would come out of Zion. It seems like these corrupt people are probably the surrounding nations that are going to try to take over Israel and mock the God of Israel. So he says, oh, that the salvation or the deliverance of Israel would come out of Zion. That would be Jerusalem. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So what David's prayer is, or desire, is that God would rescue his people and basically destroy the oppressive people. Now, um, David quotes that. I mean, Paul quotes that again. Let me show you where Paul quotes that. This is very interesting where he quotes it. Go over to Romans 11. Romans 11. Uh, when I saw this, this was uh, a surprise for me because I had forgotten. I knew the words, but I'd forgotten that he was actually quoting Psalm 14. Look at Romans 11. Now, you know what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about? Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about Israel. And how Israel is being uh, oppressed in the end time. And then Paul says, and this will continue until the times of the fullness of the Gentiles is fulfilled. You remember that verse? You've been here with Dr. Chris Wall and he preached on prophecy. He talked about the fullness of the Gentiles when it is complete. Well, that's what Paul's talking about. He talks about that in verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles is in. Now look what he says in verse 26. So all Israel shall be saved as it is written. Look at this. Right from Psalm 14, verse 7. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away godliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, he says. And he takes us right out of the Psalm 14 and he applies it instead of saying salvation will come out of Zion in Romans 11, 10, 11 uh, 26 he says the deliverer the Messiah will come out of Zion and so he sees that Israel's deliverance will be through the coming of the Messiah so he says that David's Psalm 14 and verse 7 in a sense is a prediction is a prophecy that in the end, even though the oppressors of David's generation may not be judged right there on the spot, and although Israel might be defeated, 
within a generation or two. And God doesn't answer every prayer that we pray. And it seems like the oppressors continue to succeed and those that are oppressed continue to get knocked down a little bit further and lose any respect that they have. Paul takes that same verse and says, but guess what? A deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away the ungodliness of Jacob for this is my covenant when I take away their sins. So that's what he's doing. He's quoting right there. And so in fact, in the, uh, uh, the Septuagint, he's actually quoting the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but it's been translated into Greek. Paul's quoting the Greek translation of Psalm 14. Now I'll show you something else. One other thing I want to show you. I want you to turn to Psalm 53. Okay, this is the intro. Psalm 53. Who knows what I'm going to say? Anybody? Okay, Psalm 53. When you get there, look at it. Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable iniquity. There's none who is good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there is any who understand who seek after God. Every one of them is turned aside. They together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Of the workers of iniquity knowledge who will eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great fear where no fear was. For God was, and this is the only thing that's different is right here. For God has scattered the bones of him who camps against you, through that the enemy is those that are without, who have put you have put them to shame because God has despised them. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God breaks back, brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Must be a pretty important song. Let's repeat a little bit later. One that we need to commit to memory and understand its Christian meaning. Okay, well, let me just sort of summarize this. The one thing that we've gotten out of Psalms so far is this. God divides the human race into two kinds of people. Those that are blessed, that's the righteous. They may not have wealth, they may not have status, but they are people of faith. They're trusting God to meet their needs every day. The second group are those that he calls the scoundrels. That's the Greek word for this. Fools. Uh, people who are corrupt, they don't retain God in their knowledge. They know the God of Israel exists because God has delivered Israel through the Red Sea. They've heard the stories. Uh, they reject this God and they think that they can get away with whatever they do to the powerless. But in doing so, they always have this nagging fear. Sometimes it just grips them. But guess what? Many of those people die. Millionaire. Any of those people die without ever being sick. You know, it seems like their whole life is a success. And at the end they say, maybe there isn't a God. But, Scripture says God's always in our midst. God's looking down from heaven. At any moment He can come down and He can rescue. And even when He doesn't do it in this life, there's an ultimate judgment. When God will 
vindicate those people that have trusted him. And in the end, they will receive all the blessings of the universe, the entire kingdom of God itself. And in the end, those that have rejected God and live in fear, God will judge those, and God will be proven to be true in every man of life. Next week, we'll pick up at Psalm 15. Father, we thank you for this psalm that uh, is quite amazing. And we've just scratched the surface. Think what could be done with this and, uh, in interpreting it in the New Testament. Uh, somebody should major on this psalm and write a dissertation or a thesis and give it its, explain its Christian implications. Oh, Lord, may, uh, may we take the lessons that we've learned today to heart. May we be the people of faith. May we look to you as our refuge and our shelter. May we claim the promise that deliverance will come out of Zion and in the end you'll be glorified. In Christ's name we pray.